Good morning, everyone. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Jenny, as you've probably gathered by now. Um, I've, we've been at this church for about 12 years. My husband's stewarding today. We've got two children. And I'm delighted to share with you this morning about the next section in our series on the book of Judges. And today we're looking at a very dramatic story, a little bit like we had last week with Caleb. And so like all good stories, we first of all need to meet the characters. Uh, So there are two male and two female key characters in our story today. First of all, we have the generals. Now, on the baddie side, we have General Sisera. He's heading up the army of Jabin, who is the king of Canaan. He's got 900 chariots fitted with iron and has cruelly oppressed the Israelites. For the Israelites, we have Barak, as in Barack Obama. So you can remember that name, Barak. He doesn't have any iron chariots, but for a bit of a spoiler, he does get a mention in the book of Hebrews in what we call the Hall of Faith in chapter 11. So he gets a mention for his faith, but no chariots. Then we have two women who play a key role in our story today, which is rather nice. Uh, First of all, we have Deborah, who is a prophetess and is already serving as a leader at the time of this story. She's married, but her winning partnership is actually going to be with Barak, the Israelites' general, which we will be studying. And finally, there's a surprise side character with an unusual name, J-L, I think I would pronounce it, J-A-E-L. I must tell you that uh, when we lived in Guatemala, we actually knew a couple who called their daughter this, but the J is H. You may know this because Josue is actually a J, but it sounds like a H, so she was always Heil was her name. Why they called her that, I don't know. Maybe they thought something about tent pegs, we'll get there. Uh, But anyway, so she's JL, and um, she's married to a guy called Heather, and they are descendants of Moses' in-laws. So they're not the Israelites, they're not the Canaanites, they're a separate group, but have descended from Moses' in-laws. Okay, so the stage is set for our story. I'm going to read through Judges chapter 4, somewhat paraphrasing and pulling out some of the verses, because otherwise it'd be a bit long to read it all. So, after Ehud died, if you remember from last week, Caleb talked about Ehud, the Israelites once again did evil in the eyes of the Lord. Here comes this cycle. Um, so the Lord sold them into the hands of Jabin. Now we have here the, a picture of these iron chariots. Uh, and it said because Sisera had 900 iron chariots and had cruelly oppressed the Israelites. Now that's interesting because so far we've seen that they keep going into other people's hands. But this is the first time that they've been cruelly oppressed there. So it's getting worse. Cruelly oppressed for 20 years, they cried to the Lord for help. So here comes the cycle again. And this time, the Lord acts in quite a surprising way. So Deborah, as I said, a prophetess, she's leading Israel, and she sends for Barak. And she says to him, The Lord, verse 6, the God of Israel commands you, Go, take with you 10,000 men of Naphtali and Zebulun, and lead the way to Mount Tabor. I will lure Sisera, the commander of Javin's army, with his chariots and his troops, to the Kishon River, and give him into your hands. Barak said to Deborah, If you go with me, I'll go. And if you don't go with me, I won't. Very well, Deborah said, I will go with you. But the honor will not be yours. You will not basically be the one to kill Sisera, because he will be handed in to the hands of a woman. 
So, off they go to Kadesh, and on the way, Barak summons Zebulun and Naphtali, two of the tribes of Israel, with the 10,000 men, they all follow, and Deborah goes, and off they go. And meanwhile, just a little side thing, Hever and Jael have set up their tent near Kadesh. So they just happen to be in the area. When they told Sisera that Barak was coming with his 10,000 men, here comes all the drama. Sisera gets his 900 chariots, and he's going to come down to make sure that he's ready to do battle and keep his cruel, oppressive reign. And then Deborah said to Barak, Go, this is the day the Lord has given, uh, this is the day the Lord has given Sisera into your hands. Has not the Lord gone ahead of you? So Barak went down to Mount Tabor, down from Mount Tabor, gets his 10,000 men, and at Barak's advance, the Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and army by the sword. And Sisera abandoned his chariot and fled on foot. But Barak pursued the chariots and army, and they all fall by the sword, except Sisera who keeps running. And he gets to the tent of Jael. And this group of people are friendly with the Canaanites. And so he thinks he's found safe haven. Jael comes out to meet Sisera and says, Come, my lord, come right in. Don't be afraid. So he entered her tent and she put a covering over him. I'm thirsty, he said. Please give me some water. She opened a skin of milk, gave him a drink and covered him up. Stand in the doorway of the tent, he told her. If someone comes by and asks you, is anyone here? Say no. Verse 21. But Jael, Heather's wife, picked up a tent peg and a hammer and went quietly to him while he lay fast asleep, exhausted. She drove the peg through his temple into the ground and he died. Barak came by in pursuit of Sisera, and Jael went out to meet him. Come, she said, I will show you the man you're looking for. So he went in with her, and there lay Sisera, I love this verse, with the tent peg through his temple, dead. Uh, on that day, God subdued Javin, the Canaanite king, before the Israelites, and the hand of the Israelites grew stronger and stronger against him until they destroyed him. What a story. So that is a little bit of a uh, general reading most of it out, but slight paraphrases and jumping over some of the difficult uh, place names. But you get the general picture. It's got plenty of twists and turns. And what I want to draw out this morning in particular are three ways in which we see the weak become strong. And they conveniently all begin with W. To help you remember them, weapons, women and worship. So firstly, we have the weapons involved. Now, I must admit, on reading this story, it's hard not to think of the epic battles portrayed in Lord of the Rings. If you are a Lord of the Rings fan, if you've read the book or watched the films, I'm in the second book or film uh, in Helm's Deep, and there's a massive battle there, and the enemy approaches. They've got cannons, they've got fire, they've got orcs all covered in armor, and on the other side, you have men, tiny hobbits, beautiful elves with rather lovely arrows. And you're like, really, what chance do men and elves have against these orcs covered in armor? And yet somehow good wins out, with a bit of help of magic and Gandalf uh, on your side. Uh, but here, Barak has his 10,000 men, which is a good number, but against this oppressive general with his chariots, 
it really is nothing. It's just not going to be enough. I mean, surely that's why they've been oppressed for 20 years and haven't tried to do this beforehand. But God is on their side. And iron chariots are nothing to him. I wonder if we sometimes look at someone else and what they have and, and discount ourselves because what they have seems bigger, badder, better, more effective than what we've got? Do we forget that God is on our side? That God is on our side? And to him, iron chariots mean nothing, and nor does anything that seems like a giant in your life. Maybe think of David. We often talk about David and Goliath, the giant, and David just had five smooth stones. But God was on his side. But there's another weapon here, more interesting than Cluedo's spanner and the candlestick. Behold, the tent peg. <laughs> this is, uh, we have, did have a metal one as well, but here we've got more of a sort of atmospheric, probably more true to course, wooden tent peg with a rather lovely hammer to... Um, yeah, I'm not, yeah, no, I'm not looking for a volunteer. Well, <laughs> I don't think it'd be sharp enough, but uh, no. <laughs> Are you volunteering, John? <laughs> now, it took a pandemic to get Josue and I camping. So keen were we to spend quality time with our church family, we braved the elements and the terrible airbeds to camp. Well, we glamped. Uh, as we have no tents, and therefore we're spectators in the art of putting up tents and bringing them down. What we mainly viewed was a harmonious teamwork between husband and wife <laughs> as they organized their tent, drove in the tent pegs, and set up home for the next three days. It's also incredible to see the organization required to get it all back in the vehicle afterwards. In the time of the Israelites, however, putting up tents was the work of women, whilst men took care of the fighting. And therefore, a tent peg and a hammer were seen as a woman's household object. So here we are. Now, I could say, you know, it's good. I can say these things because I am a woman, but I'm like, what would the equivalent today be? An iron? I don't know, something like that. But there isn't really an equivalent in modern day. Britain, I don't think, but maybe 50 years ago or so it would have been. Uh, but these were a woman's household appliance. So think of it like that. And then let's look back to General Sisera, this oppressive general with all his chariots. And yet he is killed by a woman's household object. That is pretty humiliating for him. It's also pretty surprising. Um, and, and it's just... You know, a weapon of weakness is turned to strength. So we've got weakness seeming with Barak, and he hasn't got his own chariot, so that's seen as weakness, but because God goes ahead of him, it all becomes uh, victory. But here we have a household appliance, and it's turned to strength. But it's not just the item, is it? It's who wields it. And that leads nicely onto our second weakness becoming strength, and that is women. There are some lovely details to touch on here. You see, women frame this story. Deborah leads against Sisera, whose oppression is actually seen most horribly in how he treats women. I'm just going to read from chapter 5, verse 30. 
Sisera's mother is wondering what's happened to Sisera after he's been killed. And uh, in verse 29, the wisest of her ladies answer her, indeed, she keeps saying to herself, are they not finding and dividing the spoils, a girl or two for each man? This was an oppressive man who had a reign of rape and terror. And what we see here is that a man who used women as objects is then killed by this womanly object. And he is brought down by two women in the ultimate humiliation. After hearing Caleb preach last week, I just was really reflecting on, you know, God's indignation. I know that, you know, the Israelites, we see this cycle where the Israelites turn away from God, uh, and then he sort of lets them, you know, sells them into the hands of a king who then takes, you know, controls their lives. But, you know, they're still his people, and I feel like God is really indignant that his people are treated so badly. So last week we saw how King Eglon was brought down, and uh, he had a dagger into him, and then he emptied his bowels, and then locked the doors, and his servants didn't want to come in, and just the smell, and he's like, that's pretty humiliating as deaths go. And here we have this great general, and he's brought down with a tent peg um, in a tent, and just... Just that humiliation. I think that there's a sense of God's indignation about how his people have been treated. Anyway, the Old Testament is jam-packed full of leading men. And it does come as a bit of a surprise to have a leading lady here. Deborah is arbitrating in disputes. And the narrative relays it as something entirely normal. It doesn't say Deborah was um, you know, there arbitrating in these disputes because there was no guy around or all the guys were out fighting so they had to find a woman. It just narrates it as something entirely normal. She's married to a guy called Labideth, and she is there working as a judge. She's also a prophetess. And, you know, she is leading from wisdom and character rather than sheer might. In her role as ruler, as opposed to military rescuer, she points to the monarchy to come and ultimately to our king of kings. Jesus. So acting as a court judge, introduces a prophetess, and with this training, she is ready to hear God's voice at the right moment. And through her dutiful service to the people of Israel, she has the clout to make the people act. She hears, but they also follow when she says, God has said. She is in the right place at the right time. But when it comes to going into battle, we have to acknowledge that a female leader simply could not take the role of a military general. Women in this area are undeniably weaker than men. We frown to say that women are the weaker sex, but when it comes to the physicality, we've got to acknowledge it. I don't know if any of you saw Strictly last night, and they were interviewing Adam Peaty, and he's like, I'm the fastest breaststroke swimmer in the world. Ah, yeah, I guess you can just say that like that when you're, when you're Adam Peaty. But we all know that a woman won't be able to get close. It's just because we're physically made differently. Men are faster and stronger simply because of their physique. So Deborah pairs up with military general Barak to form a fantastic team. Actually, just a really great example from the Bible of teamwork. Neither could have done it without the other. They come together as a team. But there's an important translation point to highlight. Me and my translation points. But anyway, this one's really important because it skews the whole way that you read this passage. Now, I didn't read it out when I went through the story. But in verse 9, 
the way that my Bible, and probably yours too, says is, very well, Deborah said, I will go with you, but because of the way you are going about this, the honour will not be yours. Because of the way you are going about this, the honour of killing Sisera will not be yours. Now, that makes it sound as if it's some kind of punishment. Because you didn't just say, yes, I'll go, because you said, I, I'll only go, Deborah, if you come with me, that it implies that he's being weak. It implies that this is the way that he's going to be punished. Well, in my book, my little Bible didn't have it, so in my big Bible, it says at the bottom, there's an alternative and important reading of that, which is probably there, yet. but on the expedition you are undertaking. So, but because of the course you are taking, because of the expedition you are undertaking, they're not you know, massively different, but actually it changes the whole reading because what Deborah is doing is simply informing Barak of what is going to happen. It's a prophetic statement of fact, not a verdict on his faith. And for me, that makes far more sense. I don't see him as some kind of coward. Would he really have been singled out in the book of Hebrews as one of the many people of faith if he was some kind of coward who wouldn't go without Deborah there? No, he wanted Deborah to go because she was a prophet. She heard God's voice. Who wouldn't want her along on the journey? Who wouldn't want her to be the one to say, go, God says now. There's all sorts of things inferred, let me tell you, from this passage, but I'm going with what I read here. Deborah was already leading, but she couldn't be the military general, and Barak and Deborah form a winning team together. And what is amazing is that Barak humbly accepts the challenge before him. He is prepared to take it on, even when he's told he won't get the glory of killing Sisera. He becomes a hero, an example of faith. He shows courage against overwhelming odds. He's humble. He's not honour-seeking. Doesn't he just foreshadow our great deliverer who did not consider equality something to be grasped? Philippians 2. He probably assumes it will be Deborah. I think I would if you were told that, it, you know, that Sisera is going to, be, going to die at the hands of a woman. But of course, it's a totally different woman our surprise side character who does the deed. Who would have thought two women would have had such a pivotal role against this cruel and powerful general? Two women against this cruel and powerful general. This was God's plan. And what is perceived as weak is made strong. Whoever you are, and whatever you hold, God can use you. You may feel weak because of who you are. You may feel weak because of the things you have in your hands, the skills you have, but God can use you. So we see God making weak strong in terms of weapons and women, but there's a third W, and that is brought out in Judges chapter 5 that I haven't really mentioned until now. Because we've got to the end of the story... But now in Judges chapter 5, we find the whole story repeated, but in song. There's a parallel here with another famous prophetess, Miriam, who after her brother Moses led the Israelites out of the Red Sea, she too commits her praise to song, complete with tambourine. 
to be honest, you know, I don't know about you, but my Bible says Deborah at the start of chapter 4, and at the start of chapter 5 it says the song of Deborah. But then it says, on that day, Deborah and Barak, son of Abinoam, sang this song. So I ask you, why doesn't it say the song of Deborah and Barak? You can add it in if you want. Uh, but, you know, this is the teamwork. It isn't Deborah, it's Deborah and Barak. Together, they then worship. Judges 4 gives a narrative of the events. Judges 5 is a theological reflection of the same story, recognizing God's hand in it all. And therein lies the power. So I'll just pick out a few bits. So at the beginning of chapter 5, when the princes in Israel take the lead, when the people willingly offer themselves, praise the Lord. Hear this, you kings, listen, you rulers, I will sing to the Lord, I will sing. I will make music to the Lord, the God of Israel. And then as they go through the story, they pull out that that God was there all the time. They recite the righteous acts of the Lord, and then when they come down into sort of verse 20, from heavens the stars fought, from their courses they fought against Sisera, the river Kishon swept them away, and they're looking because they're looking at the way that God made it all happen, because of course he did. He said when to go. He routed Sisera in front of Barak. He brought in the surprise character that ended that reign. And all the way through, really great end. So may all your enemies perish, O Lord, but may they who love you be like the sun when it rises in its strength. And then the land had peace for 40 years. I love the fact that that didn't get at the end of chapter 4, and by the way, now the land. We have this song, and then this wonderful sentence, the land had peace for 40 years. Now, those who do not know God would see what looks like singing as a bit of a weakness. But herein lies our greatest strength. When we give the glory to God when we recognize his almighty hand over it all, we know true strength. The victory was not about human strength, but the fact that God was involved in the circumstances. Our real strength comes from having the right perspective, with our eyes fixed above. Hebrews 12, verse 2, fix your eyes, fix your eyes upon Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Tim Keller uh, has written a book that's accompanying this series, says that as we search out what God was doing in a particular situation, it keeps us from over-honoring ourselves in successes or despairing in our struggles. When we look back at the story of our life, when we see what has happened and we see God's hand, Where we've had successes, we give the glory to God instead of honouring ourselves. And where there's been real struggle, again, we look to God and his hand in it and the way that he is taking us through it. And that gives you real strength to ride the ups and downs of our lives. So it wasn't physical strength that counted in the end, but faith in God. We know the end of the story, but they didn't. After 20 years of cruel oppression, they put incredible trust in their people, in their leaders, to risk their very lives. The princes take the lead, and the people willingly offer themselves. 
to achieve anything, you need both, don't you? The princes that will lead and the people who will willingly offer themselves. Are we too quick sometimes to look at things that to us appear weak and write them off? Or alternatively, be tempted to put our trust in things that appear physically strong? And perhaps most importantly, do we stop and look back at the stories of our lives to reflect on God's hand in it all and worship him for that? When I was preparing, I just felt God really uh, lay on my heart that the reminder that God is in the business of rescuing, but he also wants to rule in our lives. He's in the business of rescuing. It's what we're seeing in this series, how God comes in and rescues. But he wants to rule in our lives. That's in a day-to-day way. That's in a way where we, we walk with him. We look to hear from him on the big and the small decisions in our lives. And the song we sang just before was just brilliant, wasn't it? Who alone can rescue It's God. We know that. God is the one who rescues. And then the bridge, lift up your eyes. Lift up your eyes to the giver of life. With Deborah and Barak, we see a ruler and a rescuer. And in that song, we see, don't we, how Jesus is our rescuer and ruler in our lives. Or at least that's what he wants to be. God brings deliverance in the most surprising of ways. This story is full of surprises. He's brought it about in a surprising way. Just like a baby born in a stable and the cross. If the band wants to come back up. Um, there's some verses in Corinthians about weakness and strength. We're just going to spend some time reflecting First of all, um, 1 Corinthians 1, verse 27, which Caleb referenced last week as well. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. And then in 2 Corinthians verse, uh, chapter 12, verse 9, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for, for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses, so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Why don't you turn to the person next to you and say, for when I am weak... I am strong. It's right there, isn't it? In the New Testament, for us today, it is not just about not worrying if you feel weak. It is actually, Paul delights in his weaknesses. When we are weak, we are strong. And I believe that God would, just, God would not want you to leave today feeling like you are too weak to be his, too weak to be part of his story. Whoever you are, whatever you have in your hands, 
God loves you. God is with you. God can use you for his purposes. But the invitation is to look to him and worship. So let's close our eyes. Lord God, we thank you that in some ways it's, it's simple. We are to look to you. But so often we forget to do it. So often things seem so overwhelming that we just can't see a way through. And sometimes things are going really well and we just get to that heart forgetfulness that Caleb was talking about last week where we know you're there, we, we, we know we are your children, but are we in a relationship with you? Are we giving you our lives that you would rule over them? I want to pray for us this morning. As we look back at the story of our lives, perhaps it's just this last week, perhaps it's this last year, perhaps it's this last decade, Lord, would you show us how you've been active in our lives? Would you remind us that you are always active, that you are intimately involved in our lives? Lord, I pray for someone, anyone who doesn't feel that right now, Lord, would you just bring something to mind that you have done for them? And Lord, for those who feel that they are just too weak, I pray that you would take our gaze away from the person, the neighbor, the colleague, the, the others around us who we feel are better equipped to do something. And Lord, lift our eyes to you. We thank you that this story shows us that whoever you are, whatever you hold, we can be used by you. We can be part of your story of rescue, of deliverance, and rule with you one day in heaven. Lord God, I thank you for your word. And Lord, as we worship, would you just lift our hearts, our minds, our souls, our spirit to you. Amen.